Hello, and welcome to the Self-Sufficient Hub podcast. I'm Carl from selfsufficienthub.com, and I'm here to talk about all things self-sufficiency, all things homesteading, and about how we can reduce the gap between our consumption and our production. Sustainability and food security matters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Self-Sufficient Hub podcast. I hope you're all safe and well. Today, I'm joined from across the pond, from sunny North Carolina, a special guest who's come on the show to talk about a method of gardening, which, for whatever reason, I hadn't come across. It's not something I'd heard anything about, but at a quick glance, it seems very, very much in sync with a lot of the permaculture principles that I frequently espouse, and also no-dig gardening and a holistic way of growing food. So I thought it might be a great idea for me to find out a little bit more about it here on the podcast. So luckily, I found a chap who's willing to have that conversation with me, and he has potentially the greatest name I've ever seen, Creedmore Fury. Welcome to the show, Creedmore. Welcome all. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me on board. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So, Creedmore, um, why don't we start with you just giving us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how you came to be doing Eden Gardening? Haha, <laughs> that's actually easy. When I was a younger man, I was actually an arborist. I did tree work, tree pruning, propagating, planting, you name it, all of that stuff. And um, early on, we realized that we had a lot of waste product that nobody was using. Mm -hmm. In particular, it was the wood chips because everybody loved to burn the logs, but nobody really had a good use for the wood chips. So we just considered it to be somewhat like fodder and we would store it off to the side. And sometimes those piles would actually go on fire spontaneously. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. So as you can imagine, in a bigger operation, this is this is kind of a nightmare to match. to make sure that fire is always kept at bay. And uh, at the same time, I'd been a grower. I'd, I've, I've grown in the dirt for years and years and years now. And uh, we, we always knew that there were hardships associated with it. N never mattered how much NPK we put in the soil. There was always some kind of an issue associated with it. Well, some years ago, I guess it was about 11 years ago, I came across a gentleman from Washington State who was basically experiencing the same things, except he had some other hardships. He had very little water to irrigate with. He had, uh, he had plenty of space and plenty of time. And he, too, tried just about everything he could to get the things to grow. Anyway, one day, walking through the woods, he realized that um, Mother Nature provides for the trees and the plants and the shrubs out in the woods just fine. And, and it just survives on just the rain from the sky alone. So he started to say, hey, well, the ground over here is covered up. Why don't I try to do that in my garden areas? And one day we were out in our own garden. We we're trying to pull the weeds out of the dirt just, you know, to keep our potatoes growing with less competition. And my wife, my poor wife, she was bent over pulling grasses and weeds. And by the time she came up after four hours of being leaned over, she had the worst sunburn on her backside that you could ever imagine. Mm. <laughs> I knew there had to be a better way. So after doing rather extensive research on the inter Internet, I ran across this gentleman from Washington. Who said, hey, cover it with wood chips. Really? Yeah. Wood chips? <laughs> I've got plenty of wood chips. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was like, it was just staring at me all of this time. 
saying, hey, I'm here. I can do for you what you need to do. I can cover the ground. You know, we can keep the soil from losing moisture. We can keep it from losing nitrogen by covering it. We can bind carbon to the soil. We can do all of these cool things if we apply ourselves. Yeah. So right then and there, we knew if I'm going to make it so that there's no weeds, I'm going to cover it because there were no weeds growing in my wood chip piles, Carl. There were none. No, no. <laughs> and, and there were no pesticides and no insecticides. None of the sides that like to slow things down for us. Yeah. So it was a natural move. We went right ahead and covered up about a thousand square feet of garden space. And that garden space grew to 2,000 after a year and then 3,000. Now we're upwards over 7,000 square feet of growing space with this method being applied annually, to which we never, ever stop growing all wow. year, e even through the snow. Yeah. It's just amazing. I, I can't say enough great things about the gentleman, Paul, Paul Gauchi, who, who, uh, who shined the light on this wonderful subject for me and empowered me and gave me the confidence to go ahead and start this out. And, and I am so absolutely uh, blessed to have, to have been in the company of others who have been there before me. So I didn't have to actually pioneer the method. I was able to take some of his methods and apply them to, to my own growing areas. And lo and behold, after about the second or third year, it almost, as appear, it almost appeared as though things were on autopilot. Yeah. We had volunteer growth every spring. With the volunteer growth, I got exact planting dates and exact planting times because when they sprouted up, I knew there were two two-week germinations. I would simply count backwards from that date, and the next year I was nearly spot on. Wow. Watching, learning, paying attention. It's, it's just a thing of beauty. Now, after 10 years, the soil has broken down so much. There's a layer beneath the heaviest cover of, of, of coarse wood chips, and that layer is about seven or eight inches deep in the thinnest areas. And plants live for this carbon mass. They absolutely live for it. It'll be there forever, locked up underneath the top layer of chips, always accessible. And, so feed, and feeding the plants and the microorganisms. feed the plants. You're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I've done some, some uh, research into other permaculture methods, and it seems as though you, you, you hit the nail spot on the head. Um, these things, they seem to be synonymous with each other. You know, the, the branches fall off the trees and they create a layer of litter down in our forests that's so rich, so incredibly rich and diverse. And, and for such a long time, we've been, we've been looking away from these things. You know, we've been trying to sterilize our soils and we've been trying to, to create a, an area to grow where there's absolutely no pathogens and really no life for that matter. And to be perfectly honest with you and all your listeners, that way doesn't work well. No. It's just an untenable system. Yeah, well, um, you, you're certainly, at least to a degree, with, well, certainly with myself, and I would suggest for most of our listeners, you know, preaching to the choir insofar as, you know, being all about these holistic methods that, yeah. I mean, I mean, as, as I've already intonated, and you've obviously already got a feel for, I'm very much about permaculture, and it's, oh, you know, yeah. built into what we're doing here. And we're just, the, yeah, the, the, just the idea that, nature will provide and not not only provide but it, it can give you better yields for doing less work and, and really spending less money on all these artificial fertilizers and everything it, it just seems ridiculous that anyone is doing it any other way it really is it so is and i can give you a scale to give you an idea early on years and years ago because like i said i've been growing for over 30 years mm -hmm. and 
early on where we would turn the dirt and toil with it and the rain would wash it away and the only thing remaining behind would be the weeds. We were just working our fingers to death. Yeah. At the same time, we were also destroying the cultures that exist in the ground that help support growing in the first place. We didn't know this. Yeah. Uh, really, I mean, I was I was full in 100% into the Rodale way of growing before I found this system. Yeah. And then once I realized that their system is not a permaculture system. I took the books and threw them in the garbage, really. And and after realizing that, we can actually help speed things along, too, by introducing compost teas and things like that, you know, to our, our growing areas. And all of that can be taken right from our own land. Yeah. Every bit of what we need comes from beneath our feet. It comes from the trees around us. It comes from the so-called weeds that grow in the soils that are hyper-accumulating uh, nutrients from the air, the atmosphere, the soil, the water, everywhere. They're taking it into themselves. The whole idea about paying for fertilizer, it's just been one big great lie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and, and you know, just the, the it just it just baffles. It absolutely baffles me why anyone would do anything different, because not only are we I mean, I often I often talk about growing our own food as being like a Swiss army knife of sustainability because it, it serves so many purposes. It reduces the packaging, reduces the food miles, et cetera, et cetera. But the same can be said for using a method like this for growing your food. You know, not only Absolutely. does it give you greater yields, but it also reduces all of those inputs that we're otherwise having to artificially find and, and, in so doing harming as you've as you've mentioned harming the soil food web and all of those micronutrients and everything all the delivery systems that are, that are quite happy to do that job for us below oh, the ground precisely. precisely and all those little miniature gardeners that are down in the soil right now just begging to be yeah. fed begging to be a part of the process so we reduced a one acre garden down to about one tenth the size mm-hmm from that smaller garden that's about one-tenth the size, we get 10 times the production. Yeah. Instead of wasting the energy growing on one acre, we grow on one-tenth of an acre, and that one-tenth provides the same food as the exhaustive method of growing on a full acre did. So for those folks out there that don't have large plots of land, I can assure you, I, I really can, I can tell you, a smaller garden done this way, uh, no-till, a deep mulch growing where you're converting the wood chips and the lignans in those wood chips into carbon sources for the plants and the microbes, you can do so much more on so much less space. And in time, eventually, you won't need any other inputs other than what comes from the garden. You've mm. got green manure every season that comes out, and that can be recycled, placed right back into the system again. It's really sure. no need. You don't, you don't have to be a wealthy individual <clears throat> to be wealthy of food in your garden. <laughs> this system is not exclusive to the rich because I can attest to that. I'm not a rich man. I'm, I'm, I'm rich with the people around me, surrounding me and helping me to live a, a, a wonderfully peaceful life. I'm definitely rich with my plant cultures and, and things of that nature. And, and to that, I'm eternally blessed. I, I know others can do it. And that's kind of why I took the time to, uh, to start to reach out and share my experiences. And I'm, I'm really thankful that you even picked up on my page. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Creedmore. Um, so, so what I'd like to understand then is a little bit more about the Eden Method specifically. 
Can you elaborate a bit more if there are any, you know, what are the differences between the Eden method and what the, the two other types of gardening that I'm kind of familiar with, which would be permaculture gardening? I mean, I could, I could suppose an answer to this question, but I'd, I'd rather hear it from you. You know, what's the difference between permaculture gardening and Eden gardening? And what's the difference between Charles Dowding's method of no dig gardening and the Eden method? What are the differences? What defines Eden gardening? In all, in all honesty, there is very little structural differences, mm -hmm. very few differences. And, and I can say that because, well, many people come into it thinking they're going to heal something. They're going to heal the dirt below. They've got toxic earth. You know, they need another way to grow somewhere else. Um, they have limitations. They're working with what they have. All of these, all three of these methods, you know, they work beautifully to support that concept because the no-till method, the, uh, the, the permaculture method, the Eden method, they basically all involve using what you have to cover the soil and heal it. Create mm -hmm. little mini ecosystems down above the dirt that create that biomass above the dirt that supports the life of the plants. And it also sequesters nitrogen and carbon and, and other things that are roaming around in the atmosphere that we really don't need so much of it in the air. It's much better yeah. when it's kept in the soils. It's more fruitful in the soils. And, and equally, for whichever method, they all work for the trees, the shrubs, the bushes, and the plants. That's the beauty of it. It really is. You know, you're really giving back. You're reconstructing what was here before the influence of the floods, before the influence of our amnesia, where we figure out how to grow like this. Yeah. Oh, excuse the excuse the background noise of my dogs. There, my family have just arrived home. <laughs> oh, they sound happy to see someone. Yeah, they certainly are. They certainly are. <laughs> We're always trying to find better ways to do things, like utilize the moisture available. And the Eden method helps to maintain soil moisture levels more consistently because it resists drying out. And I was having a conversation with another gentleman not long ago where we talked about the different depths of the Eden beds, where one foot of depth will give you roughly 30 days of resistance against drought. Provided it was watered in well before the drought started, you can get roughly 30 days. Two feet will give you almost two months of resistance. Wow. Making it even deeper to three feet can push things even further. And as you can imagine, this gentleman said to me, he said, hey, you know, Creedmoor, over here where I live, um, there used to be upwards of three foot of organic matter covering the earth and it's all gone. The floods washed it all away and the dust bowl blew the rest of it away. Our methods killed the soils. Mm -hmm. so, so I can understand because one of my primary concerns is maintaining moisture. Moisture management, especially for the younger plants, the seedlings, plant starts, it's really tough when there isn't rain. Yeah. You know, so, so, so he's learning through, I guess, through me that if he has the bed, he has the deep bed, he has an influx of moisture, he too can make it work even though there's drought. Yeah. Many, many seeds will come in quite quickly. And if you carefully select the seeds that you grow for faster growing varieties and you can provide for them within the method, you know, making sure there's plenty of water available, at least at the beginning and occasionally thereafter, you know, you can grow an abundance of food in a pretty moisture scarce region. Yeah, for sure. And included in that is all the fungal cultures that help to maintain these soil food web relationships. They're in such abundance when we use wood or, or grasses or, or the things that we have around us to form a cover over the top of the earth. Yeah. All of the stuff is eventually broken down into food and biomass. And a grower can't go wrong by, on day one, covering the earth.
No. Because we're we're doing it how it's supposed to be done. We're doing it how it's it's happened for millions of years. And, uh, you know, when you talk about, you know, introducing the fungal cultures, you're you're really speaking my language. You know, the way that the networks of fungi below the ground can deliver nutrients is just something I'm, yeah, just amazed by. I'm a deep believer that that can happen naturally. It takes a few trips around the sun to do it thoroughly, but it can happen naturally. Yeah. Um, so I like to make my own inoculants because it's so easy. So okay. if I'm putting down some new cover, I'll also put down some new inoculants. You know, we can we can make mushroom teas. We can make compost teas. Um, we can make teas that are more designed for fertilizing and feeding. Um, everything is so easily tailorable. All, all that somebody needs is a bucket and an air stone. You know, every fisherman has this in their fishing kit if he fishes with minnows to keep them alive. And, and within 24 hours, you can make some of the richest inoculants that you can imagine. You know, they aid in, in creating the hummus layer below the chips. And that hummus layer has magical potentials. It really does. It is able to scavenge moisture and nutrients and hold them to it because it has a negative electrical charge. And all of these minerals, you know, they just gravitate right to it and they sit in there. And when the plant wants it, You've got all of this rich fungal networks, mycorrhizal relationships with the roots because you've been inoculating and your plants just grow absolutely fast, quickly, full of moisture. So the system is self-supporting because it's really a permaculture way of doing things. And maybe early on, we didn't link the two together as well as we have today. But in all honesty, I believe they are married eternally. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. And what Charles is doing is the same. Yeah. I I, I suppose from my point of view, you know, I would say that the no dig method and and Charles Dowding's teachings on the subject, I would say that is uh, sort of one aspect of permaculture. That's how I would describe the the link between the two. But permaculture is sort of more all-encompassing, isn't it? It it really is. It's going to include all of the life forms that are not just in the garden, but outside of the garden. Everything is contributing to this whole entire cycle of life. Uh, Whatever you might consider it to be a nitrogen cycle or a carbon cycle or an oxygen cycle, they're all contributing. And when we ignore their contributions, we're destined to find the same pitfalls again and again. Yeah. And, and, and be in a position where we are forced to find those inputs for ourselves. Precisely rely on what's already there so, so you, you've mentioned wood chips uh, a lot that was like your your intro if you like and do you use different coverings can you use i mean i'm assuming you can use pretty much any organic matter for your covering you really can you can use any organic matter we don't like to use matter that's been sitting around and stagnant and maybe uh in a soupy mess because it's in a low-lying area and it's taken on a lot of anaerobes you know we mm-hmm. do prefer to Generally speaking, we work with the, the aerobic forms of life, at least initially, and um, later introducing some of the anaerobes because we do want a balanced mixture of both. We, we never want to be too far onto one side of the scale. It just opens yourself up for other problems. It's best when Mother Nature balances things on her own. And uh, I find that um, we can use pretty much any type of cover unless that cover is rhizomal, like uh, say a Bermuda grass, something that's gonna just grow. Uh, another example might be Creeping Jenny. Um, there's a few out there that tend to make a mess of things. They can still be incorporated, but for, uh, for, for aesthetic and appealing reasons, we like to try to keep things within the fertility areas as weed-free as possible to limit competition. 
Yeah. And as such, whatever we're going to use as cover, we try to make sure it has the least amount of weed or nefarious seed content as possible. So if and it has less of that, you're better off. So, so where does composting sit and compost sit in your system? They sit absolutely right beside the garden systems. Since and you in, introduce the compost mixed with wood chip or? What we normally do is I'll, I'll create a, an area for compost where we're using scraps and green manures and things of that nature. Everything that everyone's pretty, pretty accustomed to putting in their compost. Uh, we do not use a whole lot of animal manure, although I do have some chicken manure from a neighbor that I like to add. Um, we don't add things willy-nilly. We don't just use our compost piles as a garbage place. We, we really do think carefully about what goes in it. Mm -hmm. If you're dropping fruits in it with seeds, your compost is going to fortify the life of that seed, and they're going to come back. So we take seeded wastes and put them in one compost pile, and unseeded waste, and then it goes in the other compost pile sets. Those are returned back to the garden again in about nine months' time. Mm-hmm. So we will put down a fall layer of wood chips that's usually, usually about two years old. It's been composting on the side, being turned over by hand or by machine. That gets laid as a two or three inch, maybe four inch cover in the fall. Weed, the weed, um, the weed input is lower in the fall. Not invisible, but it is lower. There's not yeah. as much flowing around. So we find that's a great time to put down a, a relatively fertile mix of compost as well. So in the fall, I'll also put down some of that nine-month-old age compost in areas to regenerate where we've been heavily growing. I'll mm -hmm. cover that with some aged wood chips. And that starts to marry together over the winter. We get some snows and some rains. And the biology starts to thrive and the worms are doing their thing in there. And come spring, it's ready. It's ready. Everything is ready to be productive come spring. Yeah. So at that point, we simply part back. We'll pull back the coarsest of the chips. The compost is pretty much washed in. And it's worked its way. It's being migrating down towards the lower levels of the soil. And your soil is really, really ready to provide for you. So that's when we'll start direct seeding and dropping plants from the greenhouses. And uh, it's, it's, it's such a simple system. It's so easy. Um, around here in North Carolina, I'm not sure how it is in England. I, I wish, but I've not been there. <laughs> I'm not sure how, how, how tough the spring is with weed pressure. But around here, we're, we're in a sort of semi-tropic region. And the, the weeds blow in from every direction. Some, well, of I, good, some of them are bad. Yeah, well, I, I imagine it's the same pretty much wherever you go insofar as, you know, the 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 term we have weeds, you know, just uh, they they refer to a group of plants that are just naturally evolved to do really, really well where you live. Absolutely. So, so you know, it's um, I imagine the weed <laughs> pressures are pretty much the same everywhere. If you've got fertile soil, then you've got. Yeah, exactly that. So we, we manage this. We don't hate this. We don't consider weeds to be a scourge. We actually consider weeds to be our nutrient source. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's word out on the street that, you know, Creedmoor Fury is using weeds as, as a, <laughs> a nutrient source. So they stay, they stay very clear of my garden. <laughs> <laughs> That's worked out really well for you. <laughs> it has. They, they don't want to be added to the compost, so they stay clear of it. But I've yeah. got a few places on my land. We, we do. We are on a, a small piece of, well, a pretty good sized piece of land based on the standards here. It's about 10 and a half acres and um, small by standards of the farms that are around us, but large by yeah. standards of the homesteads. 
So I have the the the, um, the ability to pull weeds from all over the place. We've got a, a aquaculture center that has a, it's always a moist moist environment there and produces some pretty good weeds. We like dandelions and purslane. I can't believe I'm even calling them weeds, Carl. Yeah. Well, purslane I mean, as well. Is it, they're, they're both yeah, wild edibles. It's a superfood. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's packed in vital minerals and 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 nutrients that you can't get from just any food. But but there's but, only so much purslane and nettle soup that you want to eat in a yeah. year, isn't there? <laughs> yes, yes. We're pretty well endowed with it, so yeah, I can spare a little bit to make nutrients for the garden, teas and composts, and those are the types of things we put in our main compost mixes, and they work really well as a green manure. And, you know, you keep the place a little tidier. And if you create a little bit of a void where you've taken the old weeds out, the new weeds want to come back and fill it up again. So it's ever it's always giving. It never stops giving. Yeah. And, and with 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 the weed pressure on your actual vegetable beds, insofar as you have any, is it just a case of do, do you hoe every, you know, twice a year no. or so? Or you There's don't actually, do anything at all? There is absolutely zero weed pressure. Wow. Within the growing zones, there is there is zero weed pressure by springtime when the soils are very amenable to planting your plants and your seeds. The seeds will germinate very quickly. If you can imagine if weeds blew in at the same time that I plant, they would yeah. germinate quickly, too. Yeah. But I usually because I'm paying attention to the planting window and the soil temperature. As a side to this, I'd like to mention that the soil temperature within these Eden Gardens is actually warmer than yeah around I, I i've made a quick note and that is definitely something i want to get to yeah yes. for sure yes so seeds tend to germinate a little bit sooner that's mm -hmm. why i use the, the volunteer system to get my seeding dates mm -hmm. from the previous year and it's much more accurate this way within a day or two believe it or not it's very very close the environment is is incredibly resilient and and it works along these lines provided we're doing the right thing and not trying to usurp it in any way <laughs> yeah yeah you know, so the weeds don't grow where it's super fertile because by the time my plants have come up and we grow 30 different varieties of vegetables every year. And by the time they come up, I'm putting down another layer of wood chips. And that new layer for spring wood is loaded with tannic acids. Um, it's, it's, it's a fresher wood chip. It even has some leaves in it because I like to get stuff that's been cut in early spring. And then I'll put that down a layer of about one or two, maybe three inches tops. That's all that's necessary. And now weeds can't grow. Yeah. They just will um, not grow. It's funny you mentioned that, actually, because I've made a, as we've been talking, I've made a few notes of things that I want to get to. And I will definitely get to the soil temperature. But one of the ones I made early on was actually about acidity, because I know there's lots of, misinformation and horror stories about Tons using wood Absolutely. yeah about using wood chip mulch and the acidity of it and how you can't use it around vegetables etc 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 but well I, I mean my experience and my understanding <laughs> is that you know unless you're actually digging and turning it in to the the soil which in which case there are some types of wood chip which could have a very acidic and damaging effect on the soil but if you're just using it as a mulch you basically you just don't need to think about it am i right in saying that you, you really are and i i you know just this subject it, it brings it brings a, a strange word to my mind one that i've, I've heard i've heard the english use for for uh, when we consider talk to be garbage talk we, <laughs> i've heard y'all say uh, that's just rubbish <laughs> yeah yeah for sure <laughs> and and the concept of of over acidification I understand where people are coming from because they do simple math. If I take a substrate that's highly acidic and I drop it above a substrate that's neutral, 
yeah. uh, the resultant substrate will go acidic. And that's just not true. First of all, the buffering capabilities of what's below are going to mitigate the acidic qualities of what's above. And that interface between the two is always going to be just fine. It's like mixing baking soda and, say, another acid base or a vinegar. There's going to be a reaction between the two as they buffer to a middle zone. And the one particular characteristic about these uh, no-till, deep mulch, Eden-type gardens is the wood chips always seek 7.0 to 7.4 on the pH scale. Right. Always. It doesn't matter what you do. They always seek to buffer to that range. That's where they'll end up on their own. That's where they end up on their own. And putting another layer of, say, acidic pine chips with pine needles over the top, mm -hmm. that might tend to bring them down to about a 7.0, which is absolutely base in nature. Mm -hmm. And any plant that will grow in a 6.8 or a 6.7 pH range is more than likely to find comfort at the neutral zone. Yeah. So the acidity, you could put down a foot of chips over the top and it's just not going to erase the acidity of the fertility zone enough to impact your plants. Mm -hmm. Now I can say this, there are some wood chips that have a lullopathy as part of their nature. That's not a term I'm familiar with, Creedmoor. Yes. And for a short period of time, those particular chips, while they are leaching, the leachates are coming from them and they're, you know, dripping down and running off into the rivers and the creeks and the streams. Those tend to be a little bit more resistive to germination. They can work a little bit negatively towards some species of plants. But here's the thing. It's it's short lived. It's very yeah. short lived. So, and, so that, and, that term you just use, a lollopathy, it's not what I'm familiar with. What, what does that mean? Well, we've got some trees. As an example, I could say locust. I could say uh, black walnut. Um, yep. For plants, I could use sweet potatoes as an example. They all have a chemical that they exude, a plant exudate that oh, comes okay. out of them. I'm and familiar with it in walnuts. Yeah, and with the yeah. walnuts. And, and in walnuts, it's called juglone. Juglone, yeah, I'm familiar with and that. And that juglone yeah. actually sort of comes into a medium concentration in the root zone or the weep zone below the branches mm -hmm. and it it helps that walnut to eliminate competition yeah and to gain access to the nutrients almost exclusively and i say almost exclusively because we've found in our own practice we can grow some plants underneath walnuts that are producing plenty of juglone we know yeah. this because they're thriving and then when we do this deep mulch method this eden back to eden method it mitigates that juglone quite quickly yeah. And what's further, if you want to mitigate it manually, here's the solution. Compost teas that are rich in biome, well, all of those little bacteria inside the compost teas tend to break down those enzymes. Those They break down those chemicals. They break down the juglone. Because juglone is not the only guilty chemical. There are other ones in allelopathy that impact plants. Sure. And it's basically just that plant's ability. It's, an, it's innate ability to produce a chemical that gives itself an exclusive zone of fertility for which it can form its own relationships with the soil. Yeah. And, and they do so quite well. That's why we are, we are planting sweet potatoes on the edge of a Bermuda field. And the Bermuda field does not really encroach into the gardens as a result of it. Interesting. Yeah. So grow a healthy have these relationships and you can use them in specific areas of your land of your permaculture zone to sort of keep different things in check yeah and it makes life easier once we recognize these relationships it really does um as an example i can say we, we grow walnuts and then 
you can take the wood from the walnut tree and you can grow mushrooms on it. Yeah. That to me does not sound like that tree is very allopathic and mushrooms will consume it readily and handily. Yeah. So it's just a concept. It's a period of time within that tree or that parent plant's evolution where it's going to have these tendencies, but they're easily mitigated by creating space by growing away from the weep lines of those plants or trees or covering them up with deep mulch and then simply growing in the mulch. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and understanding, understanding the different plants, you know, and what, what they're trying to achieve. I, I think sometimes we can, again, it comes back to my nature as a permaculturist, I suppose, but I, I feel very strongly that we shouldn't fight nature and, and, you know, we, we not enough people, I think, take the time to just look at the world from, the plant's point of view. And, and if you do that, then it makes everything else just fall into place quite nicely when you take into account these things. And rather than trying to dictate to nature what it will do, you really just, bless you, you just, for saying that. <laughs> you just work with it and, and understand what it's trying to achieve and get out the way a lot of the time. It's spot on. I, I always say if you want to mess up a system, just add more humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. Th there's another kind of strange saying out there. If, if all of the uh, the Earth's creatures were were gone tomorrow, all of the bugs and all of the bacteria were gone today, we, we would cease to exist. Yeah, of course. There, we'd have nothing left to do because we wouldn't be able to grow anything and we would just die of disease. But if all of humans were gone, everything in nature would just prosper. Yeah. It would yeah, find the balance again. There's a fantastic cartoon I saw, uh, which I'll try and do justice because it's a very visual medium, but I'll try and do justice here. Uh, right at the start of the pandemic, when uh, sort of everybody's fears were turned up to 11, I saw this amazing uh, little four page comic or four, four picture comic strip. Uh, basically, it was uh, just a, a picture of this oak tree. And uh, the first the first square was just the oak tree. And then the second square was the oak tree saying, don't worry, humans, everything's going to be OK. And then the third square was, again, just a picture of the oak tree. And then the fourth square was, you don't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, you know, it's so perfect, you know, it's a, from nature's. Yeah. From, from the tree's point of view, you know, they'll be just fine without us. It's just not it's not the other way around. We're a tiny cog, tiny cog in you know, this massive machine, but we're in a position due to our technological advances and everything else to, to, to really screw everything up just by trying to get involved. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that all of the movements that I'm seeing with the permaculture community and these no-till communities, I'm really hoping that we're going to make a dent. We're growing in numbers, folks. I think so. And, and beyond just our, our small communities that you've just mentioned there, I think it's really interesting to note and really important and really encouraging to note that even amongst the commercial growers amongst commercial farmers for instance you know in farming magazines 10 years ago there you'd really be hard pushed to find an article about you know the the commercial equivalent of of no-till gardening and oh, the, oh, the right. commercial whereas now you can't find a magazine without something in there about encouraging soil health and, and how you do it and and i think we've you know we've really turned a corner there so i think we and, and it is people like not now not today you and me but but the the you and me of 10 years ago talking about these things more and more and more has helped i, I don't see how it can't have i think we're raising awareness i really do it's i feel like sometimes i'm just shining a light because i don't know how 
you know, people are going to receive the ideas and the concepts that we kind of espouse to. And, you know, there's always a certain amount of skepticism that's, uh, you know, uh, it's viewed because people are going to say, oh, hey, you know, you have to mix that together. You know, you've got to till the soil to make it work. So there's a certain component to society that is still locked or sort of, you know, they're sort of held in time in that little yeah. place where they just haven't quite got it yet. They're just not quite there. And, you sure. know, to those folks, I say, hey, just wait and watch. OK. Yeah, for just sure. I mean, watch. You, you mentioned something I'd not heard of before uh, called the is it the Rodell or method? Oh, the Rodell method, yeah. <laughs> which I, I'm going to assume, I mean, what I would refer to it as is the RHS, the Royal Horticultural Society method. And I'm being... I believe it's the equivalent. Yeah, I'm being a bit unfair to them now. And, you know, because I, I'm I'm fairly confident that they're moving with the times as well. But, they you know, it, You're right. what, what I would consider to be the RHS method, which is you dig, you fertilise. You, you grow, you dig, you fertilize, you grow, you dig, you fertilize, you grow. And uh, I just think that that it is very much its own school of thought. And I it think does work to some degree of, of well, of course, it will grow you crops but very but destructive. At, but at, and at what price? Yeah, it's so and, destructive. Yeah. And, and, and more work and more, more, <laughs> more, more money, you know, and I, I, I will make, you know, no bones about, I feel very passionately about all of the environmental impacts and, and benefits of my, what, what I have landed on as my way of doing things. You know, obviously I feel very strongly about them, but I won't lie. I came across them because I wanted to save time, effort and money. That's how I came across them. Absolutely. So, the, the fact that, 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 you know, all these benefits stack on top of one another are just, is just an absolute boon. You know, you, you mentioned it before how, you know, looking and paying close attention is really, it's, 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 it's sort of elemental to, to understanding these processes. If you, if you have an open mind and an open heart and you're willing to just observe, you can learn so much even in a single season. It's profoundly yeah. life altering. Yeah, You know, it really is. When I first started out, we'd done nothing but NPK amends throughout and tilled and turned. My farm equipment sits rusting on the side now. Yeah. And it's just not necessary. The stuff was meant to be done by hand. It was meant to be easily done by hand. But I'm not working it alone. I've got all the soil decomposers that are in there working, too. And the birds and the bees. Yeah. And the mole, I hate to say it, but the moles and the voles, they're turning my soil and they're eating some of these worms. You know, and they're part of the equation as well. And uh, the only negative thing I see is that so many people that are being converted over still have that mentality of, you know, let's kill everything. Let's eradicate everything. Let's let's be the exclusive owners and hosts of this soil. But I'm, I'm here to say, folks, I'm just a custodian. Yeah, I'm just providing for my plants and I'm also providing for nature, the snakes, the birds, you know, all of the predators. They're part of this system as much as I am. You know, and, and, and there's no separating them because the second you separate them and you start forming exclusive relationships, that's when things start to sort of fall apart. Yeah. Well, there, there's another there's another lovely quote that uh, I can't remember where it came from, but it, it uh, fits in quite nicely here. And it's something I'm going to, you know, not do it justice again, but it's something along the lines of, you know, we, we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors we are just borrowing it from our children and i, I think it. yeah and and i think that's 
definitely a nice way of looking at it and and it makes you feel a little bit more of a custodian and the responsibility that comes with that that we should all feel if we've got a little piece of land it sure it sure does not hurt i can tell you taking of these foods taking of these nutritionally rich foods if if um if i had to say it i would say right out of the gate they've made us healthier yeah so you know, if if you want to venture out into the permaculture world and and grow better foods for yourself, I think you should pat yourself on the back. You know, if you want to, you know, take on some of these challenges because at first they are challenges. If you make it through year one, you can pat yourself on the back. Yeah. But really, if you can make it through year two and three, you're going to be doing more than patting yourself on the back. You're going to have to start making explanations for where all the food's coming from because people <laughs> are going to notice. Yeah, yeah. You know, with our 10 to 1 ratio of taking harvests annually now, um, I feel more pressure from from my wife because there's just so much food coming up to the house to go to the pantry to be processed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it didn't used to be that way. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely problem to have. <laughs> it really is. But I, I find myself being more mindful now because I am trying to make it a balanced ecosystem. And I have to and, and my wife has to feel that way as well. So those that are helping have to feel that way as well. They have to feel like they're a part of it, not like it's a, a negative thing. Now you're growing all this food and, and the burden is mine. It's all yeah. mine to pick it and harvest it. No, folks know that you need help to do this stuff if you're going to do it effectively. And, and forging these relationships above ground is equally as important. Well so said. Maybe, that, maybe that might have something to do with what makes the Back to Eden method just a tiny bit different is that it's sort of... Um, a lot of people view it as being a little bit more of a religious um, method. Um, you know, we have our observation of God and, and everything else, but it, it's not exclusive to that. Really, it's, it's about the relationships that we're making with each other. And even this moment I'm taking here to talk to all of your listeners, I'm mm -hmm. so grateful for this opportunity. But making those relationships with each other as humans is going to really go a long way towards creating another type of peace, another level of peace that I think everybody can live with. Yeah, here, here. We're watching. So I've got a couple of uh, questions left on my list that I want to get. Yes, through. I love it. <laughs> well, the first one I'm going to I'm going to get to is we. You've mentioned depths of beds, and and you mentioned that you know one foot of this basically super topsoil is going to give you thirty days drought tolerance, two foot, sixty days, yes, etc. And you spoke about three foot. Now we this is a, a selfish question now we are about to move house and we're going to be re-establishing new gardens and oh, I love it. i'm very much um you know of the opinion we, we're going to be doing permaculture no dig gardening etc 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 that's that's a that's set in stone that's what we're going to be doing now what i would like to do is incorporate a a slightly raised element so not raised beds where they're sort of four foot high but maybe a foot or two and i'm wondering you talk about a, a three foot of depth how does that look what does that how does that work because what i'd like to do i'd like to build some sort of very very small six inch walls um out of timber and then just add my wood chip into that grow in that and i'd like to build that up slowly over three or four years how does that and that's sound? the right approach. You've got the right approach. Building it up slowly is the best way because it allows the the mushrooms, the fungi, the hyphae to bind all of this media together. Yeah. And that, that's something that it does tend to do. If you give it the opportunity, it will bind every top layer together every winter. 
Yeah. Almost to the point where as provided there's been moisture, there's been snow, there's been rain, you've got some hyphae present beneath the top cover of chips. It'll bind that layer together as a cap. Yeah. And then that cap itself can be layered on top of again and again, and it'll cap again and again and again. So Mother Nature holds it together for you if you have enough moisture and you have the fungal cultures. So you can keep building straight up. But in my description of building up, we, we discover this only because we're growing on the side of a hill. And we thought, mm -hmm. hey, wouldn't it be neat to just make a level bed? <laughs> <laughs> so we started realizing after the years flipped past, we started realizing the moisture potential of the different depths. That's how we came to these conclusions, is that the deeper soils held and banked the moisture longer and were better able to provide for the plants that were in those zones, uh, where I would see some stresses from the plants that were only growing in 12 inches of soil. The plants that were growing in 24 inches had far less stress. They resisted senescence longer um, they gave off fewer pheromones inviting the insects to complete their senescence and they provided and produced fruit longer and even their resistance to other pathogens like fungal infections was greater. So I'm taking notes. We actually have a lab here at the farm uh, with a, se a set of uh, lenses so that we can look at the biology. So I've looked at the biology and I can see that there's some pushback in the thinner layers as the temperatures come up. Much of the bi biology involved in supporting the plants moves lower into the soil column. Yeah, moves down, simply moves away. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Pressure, and then it simply moves away from yeah. the pressure. <laughs> so we started recognizing how this was going, and we drew a lot of conclusions. At first, it was just correlation. We didn't think it was conclusive until we started applying the sciences, until we started saying, hey, let's grow these water-loving plants in the deeper beds. Watermelons grew better in the deeper beds because they had greater access for longer periods of time. Pumpkins, same results. So in medium depths, we would grow um, things like lettuces and stuff that we knew also liked a decent amount of moisture. We stopped growing those in the thinner beds and started having even more production. So again, I got to go back to the observation thing that you mentioned before. <laughs> if we're not observing, we're not learning this. And for your case where you're going to move, one of the things that I would definitely suggest is taking some surrogate soil from your working beds because it's loaded with the biome you want to start your new beds with. There's no yeah. point in starting with adolescent soil. Even if you took five or six buckets, five-gallon pails, you'd have such a great amount of inoculants to, to bring your new soils up to speed. You know what that's, I mean? Yeah, that's something I hadn't thought about, but I'll, I'll definitely be doing that. Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, really. It crossed my mind. You, Carl, you'll benefit from taking these mature, these mature cultures that you already have engaged in the process of growing mm -hmm. in your permaculture beds. You, you'll, you'll take them with you, and they'll, again, they'll propagate, and they'll grow and, and provided you can, uh, can give them what they need, the shelter, you know, the environment, they're going to thrive so much faster and you'll have cut the curve to, to, to almost nothing. Yeah. You know, so the, your idea of growing your depth a little bit at a time is a great idea. It's a fantastic idea. I find if we put two foot of chip down, it, by the end of the year, it's, it's one foot. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't stay long around here because of the rain and, and the mycology. Um, no, that's right. But without a doubt, the edges of my beds that are deepest, you're just looking at a pretty deep bed of chips that looks fairly well sculpted because I like to use my rake to keep it that way and, you know, to keep it looking kind of nice. Um, around the borders of our, our beds, we have a very heavy, thick, two-inch thick rubber mat uh, interlocking tiles that surround the beds and kind of keep the local invasive grasses from migrating inward. So mm -hmm. that's very helpful. 
But wood borders are wonderful to use, especially if wood doesn't cost an arm and a leg like it does here. Um, anything well, I've, that you I've actually use. got I've actually got a tremendous amount of wood from some fencing that we're going to be taking down before we move, so it's going you to be free. Lose. Yeah, you just can't lose. That's repurposing, and it goes right in with the core values of all of these systems. Yeah, using of these things again because they're still useful. There's no reason to end up in a landfill. Why would we do that when we can get food from this stuff? Yeah, for sure. So you know. So well, moving on to the next thing, unless unless you had more to say there, Creeper, no, I don't want to stop you. Say, so I hope I hope I've kind of you know touched on some of the things that you were suggesting you were asking about. If not, yeah, for I... sure. There's there's just one last thing which we have mentioned and we've put aside, and I wanted to come back to, and that is the heat, and it just speaks to, I suppose, something I wanted to sum up before the end of this conversation is just the power of mulch and mulching oh, yeah. just it's just this incredible multi-tool of weed suppressant garden feed but also the process of it composting generates its own heat doesn't it which it, is it really does it, it really does yeah i mean feel free to, to take over and, and run with it well, but, I, can you know, you, I can give you some ideas on the heat potential um we have two greenhouses they're approximately 12 foot by 12 foot uh, in size, and they are both being warmed by the biology or the biological effect of decomposition within a rather large pile of composting wood chips. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of call it a bio heat generator, and that's basically what it does. And for those of you that have uh, some experience composting, you know that in a given amount of time, the temperature raises rather significantly. And uh, if you can imagine that a working compost temperature range might be somewhere. And I'm going to talk in Fahrenheit here, folks. I'm not quite sure how to do the conversion of Celsius. Uh, but roughly 95 degrees to 135 degrees is a pretty good temperature zone. And if we can maintain that, which we do naturally, we can extract that heat and we do. We blow it. We circulate it right into the greenhouses. And it helps to moderate the temperature in there. It even serves to, to uh, facilitate somewhat of an air exchange. So we're using the biology within the decomposing process that generates heat naturally to act as a heat transfer uh, method to bring in warm air into the greenhouses. And we're growing actually, and this is the first time I've actually mentioned it, but my tomato plants from year 2021 are still growing today. Wow. Still producing fruit. And all this because we're using the biology provided by Mother Nature to create warmth and heat and create that ecosystem in that very small environment. Those two very small environments, they're still growing eggplants, peppers, um, uh, tomatoes. Uh, there's potatoes that are starting to grow in there now. And it does. We learned this again from taking careful temperature measurements of the varying depths of soil that we were producing in our garden beds and the wood chip piles. And we started to say, hey, you know, we're recognizing this warmth. And then when summer hit, we started to recognize the coolness. Wow, when I dig down 12 inches, the soil's cool. So it's insulative in that way where it's protective in the summer and it's protective in the winter. Yeah. And, and some of the biology is so amazing. Some of it is so symbiotic to the, to the plants that are growing alongside of it that it can create a chemical insulation process as well, whereby... Uh, fungal cultures in the soil, and by the way, fungi uh, and yeast are basically the same family. And for those of you out there who know that you can take yeast and sugar and mix it together and you get this funny little thing called ethyl alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens in the soils too, folks. And the mycorrhizal and the fungal relationships with the plants, 
they can do this together when it gets cold because the fungi doesn't want to die. So they share this. They share this ability of, of uh, almost like uh, ethylsilation where they're producing these from the sugars and they're sharing with the plants. And then this choreographs the production of anthocyanins that turn the leaves red. So if you all see this out there in your wood chip gardens, that's what's going on. The hyphae is protecting your plants when it gets cold. In the summertime, it does the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people don't realize it because they're just so happy. They're so elated to be getting food from the garden. They don't stop to smell the roses. But if you take the time, I promise you're going to recognize some of these amazing things. Mother Nature's already fortified herself to protect us, our food supply, you name it, and the biology in the soils. It protects the food as well. So keep it alive. That's why we grow all year long, because having perennial crops around will keep the hyphae and the fungi working and busy through the winter. And we want that so that when we come back to the spring and, you know, throw open the doors and we start dropping seeds, uh, the new relationships will form almost immediately and naturally. And, and that is, by the way, folks, that's how Mother Nature intended it to be. In the fall, yeah. we drop leaves. In the winter, we, you know, we, we kind of senesce and relax. But then when spring comes around with the rains, we start the process all over again. Embellishing it is a great way to keep up with the pace and, and to get your plants to grow fast. You really want them to grow fast before they get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. And uh, what, a, what a fantastic way to, to close out our conversation, I think, Creedmoor. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure. I found it very, very informative and very educational. So, uh, you know, thank you so much for coming uh, on. Well, Carl, hopefully I wasn't too nerdy. I do tend to get a little nerdy, but I'm really passionate about this stuff, if y'all can't tell. Yeah, not at all. No, I absolutely loved it. And uh, maybe you would like to come back and uh, have another chat with me in a few months' time about uh, whatever else you've got going on over there. In all honesty, it would be my pleasure to come back. And hopefully I did not absolutely murder the English language. I'm always sort of kind of conscious about, um, especially since I'm talking to those, you know, that came up with the language in the first place. <laughs> not <laughs> at all. Well, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't think I can personally claim much, uh, <laughs> much, much uh, of, of the, the profit for creating the language and i'm not sure any of our listeners will try to do so either <laughs> but we do we do we do have a global audience so you are speaking to people from all around the world so uh, no it's been an absolute pleasure creedmore and um it where well, before you go let, let everybody know where they can find you where they can find oh, gosh, your yeah. stuff thank you for, for anyone seeking any more information on the discussion that Carl and I have had uh, please feel free 24 hours a day to visit my page at east of eden grower on youtube uh, there's plenty of videos out there that uh, may maybe they'll teach you something and maybe you'll have something uh, contentious to say. I, I welcome all comments, folks. Please join, like, subscribe and be well. Good for you. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, Creedmoor. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. Looking forward to our next conversation. This episode of the Self-Sufficient Hub podcast was brought to you by our patrons. You guys are awesome. If you'd like to support the show, there's lots of ways you can do it. The easiest of which is just to like and review it wherever you get our podcasts. You can also tell somebody about it, whether that's on social media or just face to face with a friend who you think might benefit from it. But however you support our podcast, we really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to become a patron, please consider doing so by going to patreon.com forward slash self-sufficient hub. However you support the podcast, it's listeners like you that make all of this possible. Thank you ever so much for listening, and I'll speak to you really soon.